I invite you again then to take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 as we continue with our verse-by-verse exposition of this epistle of Paul to the Corinthians. The first one, we are now at chapter 12. Having clearly explained how the Corinthians were to observe the Lord's Supper for the glory of God, and I want you to see how Paul is dealing with these issues when it comes to worship. I believe he deals with the most important ones first. He dealt, of course, uh, in chapter 2 concerning the message. And he showed there how the Corinthians were showing their selfishness, uh, their pride, their arrogance, because they didn't understand the message or the messenger or the ministry. They didn't understand especially the message. He explained that about being the power of God, the wisdom of God, and so on. He dealt with the word of God. Now, he dealt, of course, with relationships as well in chapters 4 and 5 and 6 and so on. But now he comes here and he's dealing with the Lord's Supper. We dealt with that last time. And again, that is an important issue to Paul. He says that Jesus Christ appeared to him especially to give him the instructions on how the Lord's Supper was to be observed in an orderly fashion, in a way that honored him. Now he comes to chapter 12, and he's going to be talking about how we are to minister to one another using the gifts that God has given to us. And again, he focuses on the fact that it must be for the edification of God's people, for the glory of God, therefore it should be done decently and in order. And so having clearly then explained how the Corinthians were to observe the Lord's Supper for the glory of God, Paul now goes on to do the same thing with regards to the use of spiritual gifts, which were to be manifested in the gathering of the church. This is something you'll see here as you go through this text. And right away you'll know that this is what is absent also in some degree in our services today. The fact that Paul expected spiritual gifts to be exercised when the people of God gathered. And that's what you're talking about here. Now this issue actually covers chapter 12, 13, and 14. He spends more time on this particular issue than any other in this epistle, dealing with the manifestation of gifts, the use of gifts. There had been abuses in the assembly in Corinth, especially in connection with the gift of speaking other languages. And Paul writes in order to correct these abuses, but I want to underline the fact that it's not only the use of uh, speaking in other languages that were the problem, the others. That was a major one, but prophesying was a problem as well. And, and uh, we'll see that as we go along. Most of the times, though, we focus on the, what we call the tongues problem because it is focused on here as well. But the amount of space given to explaining this issue speaks to the extent and the seriousness of the issue at Corinth. Also, as how it impacts us today, because I believe that, uh, as Paul wrote, under the, under the uh, guidance, the control of the Holy Spirit, um, he uh, was doing so to speak to us today as well. And so as we go through that, we have to see that as well. Don't only look at it as something happening in Corinth. Yes, that's a historical, the primary meaning and so on. But we have to see what the application is for us today as well. And so as usual, in the tradition of Ezra, you know what that tradition is, eh? You should know by now. We will first read the text, 
then translate or explain it so that you understand it. Remember now, that's the tradition of Ezra, right? Right? All right, you all forgot that already. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 1, 1 Corinthians 12. Now, dear brothers and sisters, regarding your question about the special abilities the Spirit gives us, I do not want you to misunderstand this. Now, the first three verses, I've only read two, but the first three verses reveal the need for and clarification of the issue with which we are concerned. The need for and the clarification of these gifts. Paul explains this instruction. or He explains what needs to be done in the church concerning these gifts. And he focuses first on the criteria for determining the source of spiritual manifestations. He focuses on the criteria for determining the source of spiritual manifestations because at the present time they were ignorant of that because of their past religious experience. And so Paul has to make some clarifications, and that's how he begins. Now, one positive note in all of this is that the Corinthians acknowledged their ignorance. That's what the King James Version calls it. I do not want you to be ignorant or unaware, brethren. But one good thing is here is that they acknowledge their ignorance. They ask for the explanation, you see. They were the ones who wanted the instruction. Now, based on the context then, perhaps the question that they sent to Paul went along these lines. As you know, Paul, we have many extremely gifted people in our assembly. And, of course, if you remember, Paul mentioned this himself in chapter 1. Let me read you the verses. It says, this is chapter 1, verse 5, Through him God has enriched your church in every way. With all your eloquent words and all of your knowledge. Now, I believe that's a little sarcastic, but he's saying it anyway. This confirms that what I have told you, what I have told you about Christ is true. Now you have every spiritual gift you need. Did you see that? You have every spiritual gift you need. They were rich in spiritual gifts as you eagerly wait for the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, however, they're coming back to Paul. Say, Paul, you know that. You recognize that. But now the problem is, when we come to church, everybody wants to use the gifts at the same time. All of these eloquent people, all of these people of all of these gifts, they come out and all want to do something. Paul, that's a problem. It causes a lot of confusion. Confusion in our meeting, he's saying. Especially those with the gift of speaking in other languages. How can we solve this problem, Paul? See, at the time, it's great to be a, good church, uh, a great church leader when these kinds of problems comes up. But Paul is eager to answer. Actually, this is a beautiful scenario here. You have people who want to learn, and you want a teacher who want to teach. Now, can you beat that? I wish I could. Never mind, never mind. Right, so Paul says, no, I want to remove your ignorance. That's what he's saying. I want to replace your ignorance with information, all right, by providing you 
with solid biblical truth. So Paul is saying, so listen carefully. Listen carefully. I say the same. Listen carefully. Now here is an important observation. And this is one of the things you have to look for as you go through the book of First Corinthians. Observations, implications from the text. The text does not only speak directly, but it speaks through implication. Although richly blessed with spiritual gifts, they were not spiritual in conduct or character. That's important for us to see. Paul calls these people selfish, arrogant, uh, calls them immature, he calls them fleshly, he calls them carnal, but yet they had all the gifts they could ever want. So one of the important implications is this, that although richly blessed with spiritual gifts, you might not be spiritual in character or conduct. And so the derived principle we can get so far in our study is this, Spiritual gifts can be possessed and exercised by carnal or immature believers. In fact, that was the problem at Corinth. They had the gifts, but they were carnal, they were selfish. So get away from the idea that just because you have a spiritual gift, that you're spiritual. That's not true. Not at all. The mere possession of a spiritual gift is not a sign of spirituality, especially spiritual maturity. Keep that in mind, number one. Paul then goes on to describe their spiritual experience before they were saved. This is the reason why now he has to give this criteria for determining the source of spiritual manifestations. Again, an implication. Just because somebody get up and say, I have a spiritual message for you, doesn't mean it comes from the right spiritual source. All right? Now, today we don't like to think of that. You see, we don't like to think of that at all. You know, you know, not anybody. Wonder where that come from. Wonder that's coming from God or the devil. Most people get up or listen to anybody, especially on TV today and radio. They, once they're on TV, that's God speaking. No matter what they say, that's God speaking. Paul is saying that's not true. All right. Notice what he says now, verse two. You know that when you were still pagans. You were led astray and swept along in worshipping speechless idols. Notice, you were swept along in worshipping idols who do not speak. He talked about that in chapter 10. In fact, let me read that passage to remind you that when you go to Corinthians, please forget the chapters, even forget the verses. You get it so disjointed, you don't get the message coming to Coming through. He speaks about this in chapter 10. Notice what he says in verse 20. I say that the things which a Gentile sacrifice, they sacrifice to whom? To whom? To demons and not to God. Now they're sacrificing. But they're sacrificing to demons. I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. That's why Paul went from chapter 10 into chapter 11, dealing with the Lord's Supper, and to show how it must be done in, in an orderly fashion, and so on. So he's saying, hey, there is another spiritual source out there for manifestations, spiritual manifestations, and they are demonic. Now you have to be able to determine which is which. 
So Paul now says, since you are believers, because of your past experience with demons, now some of you say, well, that don't apply to me. I had no, I had no past experience like demons. Hmm. Well, let me tell you, you read your Bible, you find that all of your so-called spiritual experience are with demons rather than with the Holy Spirit. Because you were cut off from any, any contact with the Holy Spirit working in your life. As far as worship was concerned and so on. So, he says, alright, because of the fact that you've had these experiences, now let me give you some criteria now. Now that you are a Christian, and you have these wonderful experiences when you gather together with God's people, let me help you in showing you how to determine whether you're being motivated by demonic forces, or you're being demonic by the Holy Spirit. He gives the criteria for determining then the source of these spiritual experiences. Verse 3. So I want you to know that no one speaking by the Spirit of God will curse Jesus. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Powerful words. Notice both a negative and a positive statement here or criteria. First negative one. The source is not the Holy Spirit if the speakers say let Jesus go to hell. That's what the word anathema means, literally. To be abandoned, to be separated, to be sent away from God. And so he says, right away, that's an extreme, you might say. He goes right to the extreme. If anybody says, let Jesus go to hell, or curse Jesus in any way, you know that that person is not motivated by the Spirit of God. You say things like that don't happen. Well, maybe that's because you're not spiritually enough. In determining things. You spoke to a missionary when I was studying this passage some time ago in China. Why did I have to say that? Well, that's where he was. In in China. He said he went to one of these villages and they had a meeting there of the, of the, uh, the, uh, I forgot what they call them, the leaders anyway. And one of the men was speaking. And this fellow, he says, he got up and he started to speak in a different language. This missionary could understand it. He couldn't. The guy who was speaking, it couldn't. But the missionary could. And he said the man was cursing Jesus Christ. Calling him all kinds of swear names and everything. And he just, he said, because it felt so awful, he just got up and ran away from the situation. But that was happening in a pagan environment, you see. And this is what Paul is addressing, you see. Someone curses Jesus Christ. You can be sure right away. He does not have his motivation or source from the Holy Spirit. But then he gave a positive statement. He says, the source is the Holy Spirit if the speaker says, the genuine conviction is the idea. Jesus is God. Now, when it says Jesus is Lord, you have to do a little word study here. You go back to Romans 10 and everything else. When it talks about if you order to be saved, you must confess that Jesus is Lord. It doesn't just mean that Jesus is the master of your life. Jesus owns everything. That is included, mind you. But in the context, it has to do recognizing Jesus as the, as the God of the Old Testament. Yahweh. Making sure you know that Jesus is God. And that's what he's saying here. No one can come to that conclusion except through the illumination of the Spirit of God. Remember Peter? 
Peter, who do men say that I am? Some say John, John, who do you say that I am? What did, Paul, what did Peter say? Thou art the Christ. What did Jesus say? Flesh and blood did not reveal this, but by Father in heaven. And I believe that's a, a little description of what happens every time in the person comes to know Christ. The Spirit of God speaks to them directly and reveals Christ to them as the Son of God. That's what he's talking about here. So then he says, if anyone curses Jesus Christ, he or she does not have the Holy Spirit, regardless of the gifts displayed. It's not the gifts that tell whether or not the source is from God. Not that. See, this tells us even unsaved people could manifest, duplicate things that look like spiritual gifts to the Christian. They can be duplicated. But he says, if anyone genuinely confesses Jesus as Lord, meaning that he is God, he or she has the Spirit of God. Now Paul's purpose in these three verses is to clarify the nature of genuine spirituality, something that we don't seem to have too much care to do today. You don't seem to much care about that. He wants to show us how to determine, to clarify the nature of genuine spirituality. And he says that's a confession of Jesus Christ as God by the enablement of the Holy Spirit. Now we could derive several principles from this truth. First, spiritual experiences must be interpreted by the word, not the word by spiritual experiences. This is a day that many people are going to what they experience. I even heard one on the radio, and this is the TV factor, one of the great TV preachers says, listen, I experienced it. I saw him. I don't mind what the Bible says. You see, that's the kind of preaching we get today. That's the kind of things we're getting from prophets today. You see. No, you don't interpret experiences. Uh, you don't interpret the word by experiences, but rather experiences by the word of God. Number two, spiritual teaching must be interpreted by the truth, not on the basis of what is said or how it is said. Now, this is another thing happening today. You get people up there on, on, on the radio, on the TV, and you know, all of them are handsome. They all look pretty, all look nice. So everything they say is true. Especially if they got a lot of flashing lights. Especially if they got all kinds of drums and things going on. Especially if you could bring that camera right up to you, you know what I mean? And you could see him with, the, with all the passion and everything. And he's expressing this truth, he calls it. But it's contrary to the Bible. But you believe it anyway. Why? Because look at that nice, handsome fellow. That's why, please, I know I'm handsome, but don't listen. You know. <laughs> Yeah, thank you, thank you, thank you. Thank you. But I'm, I'm serious. Somebody will listen because he's so charismatic, so appealing, no matter what he says. And I get called names off just like that. You accept it. You see, you accept. Paul says, no. Spiritual truth must be interpreted by the truth, not on the basis of what is said or how it is said. Thirdly, all truth-based utterances in the context of the spirit, in context of the church I'm talking about. All truth-based utterances and experiences have their origin in the triune God. In other words, anything done within the context of the church that is truthful, based on truth, 
then you know the source is God the Holy Spirit. Now, Paul then, having laid down these foundational truths and principles, now goes on to speak specifically about spiritual gifts. Hear the word of God. Verse 4. There are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is a source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but we serve the same Lord. God works in different ways, but it is the same God who does the work in all of us. A spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. That's a beautiful passage of scripture. Now, (coughs) simply stated, and also to summarize this verse, or these verses, Paul is stating that spiritual gifts are diverse in nature, but have a common source and a common purpose. They are diverse in what they are, but they have a common source and a common person. In other words, there are many in number, but only one in source and one in purpose. He's trying to show that there is unity in diversity, even within the church. He also says in this passage that spiritual gifts are given to believers for the common good of the body, not only as a sign of the possession of the Spirit. See, even that even goes on today. Some people will teach that uh, you do not have the Holy Spirit until you can speak in tongues. Many people teach that. That is contrary to biblical teaching. But yet it is taught again and again by some of the most quote-unquote outstanding preachers we have. But it is not according to the word of God. All right, let's look at the text and hear God speak to us some more from this text. He says in verse 4, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts, but the same spirit is the source of them all. There are different kinds of service, but the same Lord God works in different ways, but it's the same God who does the work in all of us. Notice, first of all, there are different kinds of spiritual gifts. There are different kinds. We're going to talk about that. Different in nature, different in intent, different in purpose and all of that. Uh, intent. But second, the source. Each member of the Trinity is involved. Different gifts. But each member of the Trinity is involved. It is the Spirit who is associated with the gifts of grace. The Lord Jesus Christ is associated with ministry. And God the Father is associated with effects or manifestations or different ways, depending on the translation you have. But this is Paul's point. This is Paul's point. There is divine unity in the diversity of valid spiritual manifestation and expressions. He says, I want you to understand that there are going to be different things going on. But if it's the Spirit of God who leading, it's all going to be done decently and in order. It's all going to be done for God's people to be edified and for God to be glorified. That's what he's laying down here. So here's the principle we could derive. The one common source of valid Diversified spiritual manifestations or expressions is the triune God. Look at the passage. You'll see that. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They are involved, but they have one purpose. The glory and the edification, the growth of God's people. 
He then goes on to state the purpose of spiritual gifts in verse 7. He says, in this New Living Translation, a spiritual gift is given to each of us so we can help each other. King James says, for the common good. Now you can gather four implications or four principles from this verse. First, each person receives a gift, not just a few select people. He said each one. Once you are a believer, God has given you a gift by His Spirit. You've gotten a gift. You don't have to wait for anything. Once you are born again, you have a gift. You don't have to go to Bible school. You don't have to go to seminary. You don't have to pass a test. Once you place your faith in Jesus Christ and you are removed, you are you have a, you are given a gift. He says this right here. Each person receives a gift, not just a few special people. Secondly, spiritual, spiritual gifts are not earned. Text says they are given. In fact, it comes from the, the Greek word, gift of grace, paraspaton. It's given. We cannot earn it. We do not even deserve it. Thirdly, we'll come back to some of these things later. Spiritual gifts are manifestations of the Spirit. They do not manifest the Spirit. That's a little catchy, but think about it a moment. In other words, they are not to show that we have the Spirit, but rather that He has us. See, this has to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit must be able to use his spirit, he is placed within us anytime he wants. Now, we're going to talk later on when you come to it in the passage about who has control of the spirit, uh, who has control of the gifts. We're going to see, Paul says, the prophet has control over his gift. But we also see that the Holy Spirit has control over them. In other words, the Holy Spirit could use them anytime, any place that he wants in my life, in your life, if we are submissive to him. But number four, the gifts were given for the common good. In other words, they must be used for the growth of others. This is an important truth. The spiritual gift that has been given to you was not given for your growth. It was given for somebody else's growth. Your, growth, your gift was given for my growth. That's why we need one another. That's why each one of you as a member of the body of Christ is, body of Christ, is important to this body. You are. And if you are not involved in the manifestation of that gift, you are causing the body of Christ to starve. They're not growing as they should. We are not growing as we should if you're not functioning the way God wants you to function. You are important. You're important to me. I hope I'm a little bit important to you. But we are important to one another as members of the body of Christ. That's Paul's point. So we can... Put an overriding principle here. Spiritual gifts are not to be exploited for personal profit. And I believe if there's one... <coughs> excuse me, I'm, as you are probably aware now, I'm fighting the flu. What is that saying? You feed a supplement and you fight and you, and you starve something else. What is it? You feed a cold and you starve a fever. Feed a cold, starve a fever, and fight a flu. That's my own, fight a flu. That's what I'm doing right now. This is one principle I believe is being grossly violated today. The exploitation of personal spiritual gifts. Individuals are using to enrich themselves rather than the people of God. And that's a sin. 
I believe the church has become so commercialized and all the major preachers are doing it. They become salesmen. What are they selling? The free gift that God has given them. I believe we're going to have a lot to answer for. You see, we're going to have a lot to answer for. Spiritual gifts are not to be exploited for personal profit. And that doesn't mean that the preacher, the teacher, or whoever has special gifts and they use it, it doesn't benefit them some. Because it says those who preach the gospel is what? Live by the gospel. But we're talking about exploitation. Paul next goes on to explain the diversity of the gifts. Verse 8. To one person, the Spirit gives the ability to give wise advice. To another, the same Spirit gives the message of special knowledge. Now, this is a New Living Translation. You probably heard it a little different in the King James. Um, you, for instance, that will be called the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. To another, the same Spirit gives the message of special knowledge. The same Spirit gives great faith to another. And to someone else, the one Spirit gives the Gifts, notice now on my translation, I have the gifts of healings because that's what it is in the original. And that makes a lot of difference as our way of thinking about a gift. It's not the gift of healing as though it's one gift. Rather, it's the gifts of healings. There are many gifts having to do with healings. Perhaps some person with one gift of healing will not be able to affect the healing with this person because they don't have the gift of healing that person. You see, how we do it now, we have the idea, I have to give this, and I can heal anybody, any time, any place. Just give me the money. That's not in keeping with the scriptures. It's the gifts of healings. We're going to see that also in other gifts. It amazes me how these things are overlooked or neglected by other Bible preachers. It just amazes me. You see. So, it's in the plural, and it's often overlooked. Verse 10. He gives one person the power to perform miracles. You can see that's another, uh, when we get to this, I'll talk a little more, plural word. To another, the, the, the ability to prophesy. He gives someone else the ability to discern whether a message is from the Spirit of God or from another spirit. That's a spirit of, that's a, that's a, that's a uh, gift of discernment. Still another person is given the ability to speak in an unknown language, or rather unknown languages, while another is given the ability to interpret what is being said. Verse 11, it is the one and only Spirit who distributes all of these gifts. He alone decides which gift each person should have. Now there are three overall principles that may be derived from these verses. First, spiritual gifts are sovereignly distributed to each believer by the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to go over this when I give you a definition of spiritual gifts, so I'm not going to deal with it now, but for repetition's sake. Spiritual gifts are sovereignly distributed to each believer by the Holy Spirit. In other words, we don't have anything to do with what gifts we have. Secondly, spiritual gifts are exercised by the believer through the energy or the power of the Holy Spirit. The spiritual gifts that we have are only spiritual when they're used by the Spirit. Uh, genuinely spiritual, anyway. In other words, that differentiates a spiritual gift from a natural ability or natural talent. A lot of teachers try to say, no, God enhances your natural gift. No, 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 no. 
This is a spiritual gift. We'll see a little while later, this word spiritual also determines the source of this gift. Principle number three. Spiritual gifts are not given by request or desire, but by the sovereign choice of the Holy Spirit. You could pray and fast all you like for a special gift. You won't get it. All right? You won't get it. Because it's God, the Holy Spirit, who determines which one you get. And you get it the moment you become a Christian. We see that later. But now exactly, what are these spiritual gifts? And perhaps more importantly for some of you, what are my spiritual gifts? How do I receive them? Or rather, not how do I receive them, how do I discover them? And how and where do I use them? Now, these are the questions we want to look at as we go through the text. And we're going to go through the text with this. We're not going to try to impose the answers upon the text. We're going to try to get the answers out of the text. So let's answer the first question first. What are these gifts? Well, first of all, we've got to define the term spiritual gifts itself. Not just the individual gifts, but the term spiritual gift itself. And in, the, and in given your definition, I think you'll see uh, how important it is to know this definition. Here is a definition based, I believe, on the biblical text. Um, now, this definition is not inspired. I wrote this. All right? And uh, I don't think these inspired. What do you think, Tillman? No, these are not inspired, but they're taken from the text, and I put it together to try to give an idea. Spiritual gifts are special spiritual abilities graciously and sovereignly given by the Holy Spirit on behalf of Christ, who is the head of the church, to each member of the body for the purpose of advancing both individual and corporate spiritual maturity of Christ-likeness through the interdependent or mutual loving exercise. And that's a mouthful. But every word in that definition was especially chosen, specifically chosen. So, let's break it down so we could see what it is saying. First, spiritual gifts are special spiritual abilities. Special. This describes the nature of the gifts. First, they are special in the sense that they are uniquely suited or fitted to the individuals to whom they are given. God knows your personality, He knows your makeup and everything else. He suits the gifts to you as an individual. They can only be used the way God wants them to be used by the ones to whom they are given. You cannot use the gift God has given you to do exactly what I was supposed to do with that gift. You might do it in the way God has given it, but not the way I would, and vice versa. Do you understand? That's why I tell everybody the worst thing in the world you could try to do is try to be Pastor Lee. You've got to be you. You see, the Holy Spirit wants to deal with you as a unique individual, who you are. They're adapted, they, I believe they are adapted to your personality, in other words, to who you are as a person. But second, they are spiritual as opposed to natural. Spiritual gifts are not natural abilities. 
They are the spiritual. They are spiritual. And this word spiritual reveals both the source. It's a divine source. Apart from the human. An essence in nature. The gifts are divine. Not human or natural. This is how one commentator puts it and I like it. I quote him. Talents have to do with techniques and methods. Spiritual gifts have to do with spiritual abilities. Talents depend on natural power. Spiritual gifts depend on spiritual endowment. That's the difference. They are not natural. They are spiritual. Third, spiritual gifts are abilities. They are not offices, positions. They empower a believer to perform a spiritual ministry or service, not to assume a place or position of power. In other words, just because I have a gift doesn't automatically fit me into a position. You see? Now, that doesn't mean that the person in a position don't need gifts for that position, but those positions do not in any way right away say you have that position. All right? And we'll talk about that a little later on as well. We'll go on. They are gifts of grace. We say graciously given. They are gifts of grace, which is the literal meaning of the Greek word charasmaton. This indicates that spiritual gifts cannot be earned or merited in any way. They are gifts of grace. We can't earn them. We don't merit them. In fact, we don't deserve them. They are absolutely free. And like salvation as a whole, it's based on grace alone. God's grace. And they're given sovereignty. This relates to the fact that spiritual gifts are given or distributed at the discretion and volition of God through the Holy Spirit. They are the ones who decide which gift you or I have or are given. And so, as I said before, you cannot pray for them. You cannot fast for them. You can't beg for them. You can't pay for them. The church can't give you to them. And no member of the church, no official of the church can give them to you. They are given sovereignly by God the Holy Spirit. And as we already said, they are given. We've already talked about this so we can move on. They're given by the Holy Spirit on behalf of Christ. Christ is the head of the church, of course, gives gifts to all the body, but he does it through the Spirit. Now this pinpoints, I believe, both the source and the time of the giving of the gifts. Again, we'll deal with this later on because there's much more we have to go with. But for now, we can say that spiritual gifts were given by the Holy Spirit on behalf of Christ, the head of the church, at the time of our conversion or our regeneration. That's when we experience them. That's when, we, that's when they become ours, when we place faith in Jesus Christ. Why? Why? For the purpose of advancing both individual and corporate spiritual maturity or Christ-likeness to the interdependent loving exercise. In other words, spiritual gifts are given for the purpose of advancing both individual and corporate spiritual maturity or Christ-likeness. We as a body cannot become mature or Christ-like unless you exercise your gift the way God wants you, and vice versa. It's also true with the individual. So the first time you start to complain or criticize with the coldness of the church and the fact that there's nothing spiritual here, go look in the mirror. It could be your fault. 
You've got to ask yourself, what am I giving? Am I using my gifts freely and in a loving way to help the body to grow? We're all in this together. The Bible says when one suffers, all suffers, right? Didn't say that? One, one rejoices, all rejoices, right? When one get the blame, all get the blame. I like to say it the other way. When all get the blame, you get the blame. It is quite evident, therefore, that spiritual gifts are not given to personally profit the one possessing the gift, but rather to profit the body of Christ as a whole and member by member. Please get a hold of that. God didn't send you here to Calvary or to whatever church you might be attending or committed to just so you could fill the pew. He sent you there or he brought you here because he saw that we needed you. We needed the gift that you have. All right? We needed the, we need the gift that you have. All right? Now, of course, sometimes we fail as leaders to make opportunities, provide the opportunities necessary for the people to do that. We fail in that area many, many times. But it's also likewise. Sometimes you fail. As things get tough and get tight in the body, nobody appreciates me, you know, boom, 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 you all, me, 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 me. Well, that's the wrong way to use in the first place. You see? It's a mutual thing, interdependent. You have to care for one another. And when we say, hey, um, I, I, I care for you, what you're actually saying, I'm caring for me. You see, we need one another in order for the church to mature. Now, these gifts are to be ministered mutually and freely among believers, especially within the context of the worship service and the worship, the service, and the fellowship of the local church. And this is to be done for God's glory. In fact, as this is done in God's way, both the individual member and the body as a whole will grow towards spiritual maturity, therefore glorifying God and accomplishing his main purpose for being on earth. To glorify God through the edification of the people of God. As someone has said, spiritual gifts are the language by which members relate to one another. I like that. Spiritual gifts are the language by which members relate to one another. What are these gifts? The first ones we have listed here is in verse 8. To one person... The Spirit gives ability to give wise advice. That's the word of wisdom. To another, the same Spirit gives a message of special knowledge. That's what the King James says. is the word of knowledge. New Living Testament, the ability to give wise advice. This is followed by a message of special knowledge. The King James describes them, the word of wisdom and the word of knowledge. Have you heard those? How many of you have the word of wisdom? You got it? All right. Who has the word of knowledge? Some people do like this. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how, how many of you can tell me what your spiritual gift is right now? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's amazing, isn't it? It's amazing. I believe you know, but you don't want to say it, hey? All right. Now, let me quickly give you this. The ability to give wise advice or the word of wisdom. And normally that don't call, that's not a big problem. Because actually, I believe it means exactly what it says. The ability to give 
wise advice. But I see that as a secondary, uh, I see that as a secondary meaning, really. And it has to be spiritual advice, by the way. Why? Because it's a spiritual gift. This has to do with spiritual wisdom. The ability to give wise advice, meaning spiritual advice. Because it is a spiritual gift. The second one, however, presents a little problem. It's the ability to give a message or a word of knowledge. The word of wisdom. This gift has been and is being used by many today as the ability to diagnose physical problems without seeing the patient. Somebody in here got a toeache. Somebody here has a headache. I know when you're talking to 5,000 people, you got your life. Somebody here got one of them. You know, you could say a liver, anything. You, if you get 5,000, 6,000 people, somebody get whatever you could come up with. But that's what's being called a word of knowledge today. And you see, that's why I know my God is a gracious God. Because God wasn't gracious. Most of those people wouldn't be around today. That's an abuse of the word of God. And there's so many of God's people who buy into it. You see? You buy into it. You take it. You never go to the scriptures and find out exactly what it says yourself. The guy is pretty. The guy is charismatic. Got all kinds of wonderful settings around. So it must be true. Here's the problem, I believe. The only place where this phrase is used, or these phrases, word of wisdom, word of knowledge, is used is right here. There's nowhere else in the Bible where these two phrases are used. The problem is, it only names them it doesn't describe them. Therefore, that leaves the gate open for us to put our own meaning in it. I think that's where the danger comes. However, I believe that the scriptures do give a definition of these if you use one of the major principles of biblical interpretation. You know what it is? Compare scripture with scripture. Here is a guideline for studying a passage that is difficult. And like here, the only place that the word is used, or the phrase, is you look, first of all, to see if the same writer uses the same word in the same book. If you can't find it there, look in another book he's written. Then look at all the other writers of the Bible. See how they use that same word. Now, it has to be the same word. All right? Now, when you do that, you get a better idea of what he meant when he used these words here, although he didn't explain it. Did you understand what I'm saying? Comparing scripture with scripture. It seems that most people I hear haven't done that. They haven't done their homework. So I'm going to help you to do that today in five minutes, and then we'll let you go. For instance, look at First Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 to 13. Now, 
I don't usually put all that text up at the same time. But I did it this way so you could see the use of the words in the, in the, in the text all at once. Alright? Paul is saying, yes, we do speak wisdom. That's the same word that he uses in our text. Among those who are mature, a wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age, who are passing away. But we speak, notice now, God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages of, our, of glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, and so on. Verse 10. For to us God revealed them. But let me go up because this is another passage we normally take out of context. I almost did the same thing. Just as it's written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. Normally we start there and we say, see, we can't understand all the things God has, God has prepared for us. But the text says just the opposite. Look at the verse 10. For to us. God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even in the depths of God, and so on. Now, what I want you to notice here in this passage is that the, the word wisdom is always used in the context with mystery, deep things of God, and uh, that sort of a thing, the mind of God. All right? In each instance, the word knowledge, as used by Paul, refers to special revealed knowledge concerning the deep things of truth. Based on this, I believe then that a credible, a credible, a credible biblical definition of the word of wisdom is this. The word, of, the word or message of wisdom is a special spiritual wisdom given in connection with understanding direct revelation concerning the deep things of God. So I see the first meaning as being referred, like for instance, the apostles in writing the scriptures, so they could have the understanding of the deep things of God and write them down. I believe that's the first meaning of this, because that's how those words are always used. Now, let me go on. The second one that is the is the message is, is the is the word or message of knowledge. The definition that I give to this one is the special spiritual ability to apply the truth of divine revelation to specific situations through the Spirit. And the reason why I say this is, again, when you use, look at the word knowledge, you'll find that in other writings of Paul, as well as Peter, that these words, when they're used together, always have to do with the deep things of God, the mysteries of God, nothing else. That gives me some guidance as to what Paul is, how Paul is using these words. At least I have a biblical basis for definition, not one I just get out of the air. All right? Now, and so I see the message of word of knowledge as being a companion ability to the word of wisdom. Notice what it says in the text, another of the same kind. In other words, the word of knowledge is of the same kind as the word of wisdom. That phrase, another of the same kind, is important because he's going to mention another of a different kind. Alright? There's a difference between another of a different kind and another of the same kind. He's talking here about another of the same kind. You know what I'm talking about? See, that's what you need to do. Now, notice, like wisdom, knowledge is related to the mystery or deep things of God. 
That's why I look at this as a clincher for my definition. Whenever they are used together, knowledge and wisdom, that's what they are used in connection with. The understanding of and applying the deep things of God. And so that's what I see. I don't see that word of knowledge as someone saying whether somebody is sick or not. It has nothing to do with that. There's nowhere the scripture says that. There's no hint of it anywhere. That's only what they put on to it. But at least our definition you can find biblical basis for. It's what God reveals to a person in the primary contact with the apostles who are writing the scriptures, the deep things of God, so they could write it and apply it. Today, the secondary meaning is where we study the word of God, those who are gifted preaching, teaching the word of God. The spirit of God illuminates our minds. We're able to understand the text and apply it. That's why I see those words being used. That's those two gifts, the message of wisdom and the message of knowledge. Both of these gifts have to do with the mind or intellect and with the knowledge of the word of God. However, the word of wisdom is dependent upon and in keeping with the word of knowledge. They don't contradict one another. They always supplement one another. We're going to stop there for the day. We'll pick it up next week, Lord willing. Bow with me in the word of prayer, please. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We pray now that in these closing moments, your word would find good soil in our hearts. Thank you for the gracious gifts you have sovereignly bestowed upon us. Grant now that we might use them in a way that edifies the body and glorifies the triune God. And all of God's people said, Amen.